Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're happy to see you here at the Pratt this evening. Um, I wanted to point out, before I introduce our speaker, that uh, our July-August calendar is available on the table in the back there, and, and please pick up a copy so that you'll know uh, we are going to continue our Writers Live series in July and August, only one in August, but um, we hope that you'll come back and see us. One of the programs in July that's um, sort of related because it's uh, about Michelle Obama, uh, it's author, uh, journalist Rachel Swarns, who's written a new book called American Tapestry, and it's about uh, Michelle Obama's genealogy so and it was reviewed I think last a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times on the front page of the New York Times book review so we hope you'll come back to hear Rachel and some of the other authors who will be here in the coming months this evening we're pleased to welcome um, Professor James Mann whose new book is called um, the Obamians let me change my glasses here the Obamians that's a hard word to say. The struggle inside the White House to redefine American power. Um, James Mann takes us inside the back rooms of the White House, the Pentagon, the State Department, and the CIA to show the interplay of events, ideas, personalities, and conflicts that drive America's foreign policy at the highest levels. Um, Professor Mann is a former newspaper reporter, foreign correspondent, and columnist, and he is now author in residence at Johns Hopkins University's School for Advanced International Studies um, in, down in Washington, D.C. He is the author of the best-selling Rise of the Vulcans, and he's written three books about America's relationship with China. Please join me in welcoming... Uh, Professor James Mann to the press. Thank you, and thank you all for coming out. That professor uh, title is a, a little misleading. Um, I am a writer in residence at Johns Hopkins. I'm actually spent most of my uh, working life as a journalist, uh, newspaper reporter, including actually for a, a couple years for. Um, the Baltimore Sun here, um, but for most of my career with the Los Angeles Times. Um, and I should say also by way of, of introduction, um, because there are so many um, partisan political books here, that I try um, in my books to tell the story as dispassionately I, as I can. We can get into debates if you want. No one's completely dispassionate. People have, and, and I'm no, no different, people have their own views even when they try to be dispassionate, but really this is not a book um, that was written to um, show, um, to, to say, you know, vote for Obama or vote for Romney um, or anything like that. I started, uh, so there was mention of um, a previous book called Rise of the Vulcans, um, and this book is, is a follow-up to that earlier book. That earlier book, Rise of the Vulcans, was about George W. Bush's foreign policy team. Um, and uh, I started it in the early Bush years um, when there was great curiosity about these people who had um, taken the United States into the war um, in Iraq. 
And the book was very popular. Um, people remembered it not quite right as a book about neoconservatives. Um, and that's understandable, but to be accurate, it was really about all the members of George W. Bush's foreign policy team, both people like uh, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, and also their rivals within the administration, uh, like Colin Powell. Um, so it spanned the spectrum of the Republican Party, and I tried to trace back the Republicans um, on how to deal with the world from the time of Vietnam, the late 60s, early 70s, um, right through to um, 2001-2003. And this book grew naturally out of that. This book, The Obamians, um, I started uh, thinking about and beginning to um, research right in at the end of 2008 when um, Obama won the, the 2008 election. Um, because I realized from the, from the Vulcan's book and, and other books I'd written that there is a story to be told about the Democrats and the world, and it's not the one that's um, caricatured in political discussion, uh, but rather um, that the Democrats have, have gone through their own path over the last um, um, 30 or, or 40 years um, so since the early 70s, the, the Democratic parties had a strong grassroots base that grew out of the anti-war movement um, of the Vietnam era. Um, and its officials in foreign policy, uh, and this is true of the Obama administration, were very different from the kind of people who served in George uh, Bush's administration. One of the, uh, despite all of the underlying battles within the Bush administration, Everybody on all sides believed in military power as a primary instrument in American policy. So, and their, their backgrounds tended to be from um, the Pentagon. So the Secretary of State, Colin Powell, had previously been the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. His assistant um, and ally, Richard Armitage, had spent most of his life in the Pentagon. Even Condoleezza Rice, um, the National Security Advisor, had spent... Uh, her first year or two in Washington working in the Pentagon. Democrats have been different. Uh, you may recall that, that uh, Bill Clinton, uh, for the last few years of his administration, appointed a, a Republican to be his defense secretary. Um, they have, there are f fewer people and fewer in the Obama administration who have, were loyal Democrats working along over the years um, with the Pentagon as a primary focus. Um, uh, and there's a, you know, the reason is that they're less um, convinced that military power is the dominant element in American foreign policy. And so Obama, who was, after all, the first um, American president uh, who was really uh, neither, neither served in, the, in, in many decades, who neither served in the military nor was subject to the draft, um, was a little bit insecure in, at the beginning of his administration and felt compelled to bring in uh, outsiders. So for the, at the Pentagon, the defense secretary he appointed was a holdover. It was George Bush's defense secretary, Robert Gates. And he appointed um, a couple of senior military leaders to other senior positions. Um, so in that sense, the Obama team 
was different. It wasn't people who had worked together over three administrations or many decades. Um, and if you were looking strictly at the formal cabinet positions, there wasn't much cohesion. The, even over the three years under Obama, these jobs changed over. Um, actually, if you took the top 10 jobs, formal positions in government, um, in foreign policy, the number one and the number two people at um, the State Department, the Pentagon, the CIA, the Office of National Intelligence, which coordinates the, the um, intelligence community, um, and the National Security Council, um, people tend to not recognize this. The, chain, the turnover under Obama, for all kinds of reasons, good and bad, has been so remarkable over three years that out of those 10 positions, there is exactly one person um, in government now who was there in January uh, and the early months of 89, of, of 09, and that was Hillary Clinton. Um, so at the, you know, in these ranking positions, there's not really much of a team, and they don't really stay on the job in, uh, they don't they don't stay stay put for long, um, but there is an inner team that I call the Obamians, and the Obamians represent um, the newest generation of foreign policy people, people who are young enough so they came into government with Obama. They hadn't served in the Clinton administration. Um, they were really Obama's people. Most of them, just all of them, had worked on Obama's presidential campaign. Um, and that's who I, I call the Obamians. And what, what I found over uh, the three years was that there were the, one of the most defining features of this current administration has been the generational tensions and conflict between them. Um, really, it's Obama and his young aides who are the core of his foreign policy, and they kind of have a different view of the world. So when I look at um, this administration, you get, there are really three generations all working alongside one another. The first I, is the post-Vietnam generation. It's people who are now in their 60s, 70s, who began working uh, in the 70s, uh, or in one case, Richard Holbrook, the 60s or the 80s. People like um, Joe Biden, um, uh, George Mitchell, uh, Greg Craig, John, I, John Kerry, who is not in the administration but is its closest um, ally in Congress, also the Vietnam generation. And their outlook tends to be to be extremely cautious um, about the use of force, and for good reason. I mean, they lived through uh, their formative experiences were at a time when the United States um, engaged in a uh, military operation overseas that went just uh, disastrously wrong. Um, and it doesn't mean that all of this generation of foreign policy officials came out of it as um, pacifists uh, or necessarily anti-war. In fact, uh, some of them spent a lot of their time uh, becoming kind of centrist Democrats who were opposed to the anti-war movement within the party. But even if they, even if they felt that way, they knew um, they were extremely reluctant 
uh, to commit American troops into battle unless they were 100% sure that things were going to come out all right. And on the whole, um, they were strongly in favor of, of doing something else. Um, and this, this generation of Democrats um, is the dominant force in the party until about 1991. And in 19, uh, 1991, you have the Persian Gulf War. Um, and the Democrats before that war um, uh, vote against it uh, in Congress. Uh, George, it's George H.W. Bush, the senior George Bush. Um, and they, they simply miscalculate um, what the military situation is and what the military can do um, because they predict that there are going to be tens of thousands of casualties. And in fact, um, fortunately, the war was much quicker and was an overwhelming victory. And afterwards, they felt kind of embarrassed. Uh, the, the, um, and, and that really kind of represented a break for the party because soon Bill Clinton uh, and his administration take office. And meanwhile, there are a bunch of other events going on in the world. Um, the United States um, is uh, the sole surviving superpower after the Berlin Wall falls. Soviet Union uh, falls apart. The American economy is increasingly prosperous. And you get a new, ex um, extremely confident generation, a new cadre or generation of officials who really have th think differently than the, the Vietnam people. They, um, they kind of assume that generally the United States is a force for good in the world, that when it does things overseas, it isn't either malign or it doesn't screw things up. Um, they've seen the end of the Cold War. Um, and they, have, uh, they tend to be supportive of uh, the military in ways that the Vietnam generation wasn't. Um, and during those Clinton years, um, a bunch of younger officials come along, not necessarily at the top of the administration, but one or two ranks down, just young enough so they're ready again to take office in, the ne in another Democratic administration. Um, and they include people like the current National Security Advisor, Thomas Donilon, and a bunch of other officials whose names you may not recognize, but at the level of Deputy Secretary of Defense, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, which is really the number two position in the Pentagon, and so on. And um, they become the dominant force in the party. And as I try, I try to explain in the book, in the beginning of the decade, beginning in 2001, they take office, I mean, excuse me, they're out of office, but begin um, to argue in all the parties' internal meanings about how to deal with the world um, that uh, military power is important, uh, that, the, that the Democratic Party should not allow itself to be uh, uh, governed by its grassroots base, that the United States should maintain an active um, role overseas. Uh, essentially, they were a force in opposition to um, the peace movement within the Democratic Party. Uh, and one of the, I, I try in each book to trace through 
kind of the intellectual battles that take place. The, the, the representative book that was written by one of the members of this second generation was simply called Hard Power. In other words, the United, the United States should not rely simply on economic means, but it was important to emphasize um, the military. Um, and that, you know, that's the second generation. The problem is they run, and, and, and really Hillary Clinton and her campaign in 2008 really kind of embody um, that second generation. The problem is that in 2002, um, uh, George W. Bush is headed for war in Iraq. He asks for and gets approval from the Democrats in Congress, um, um, including officials like senators like Biden, Kerry, um, and Clinton. Um, and in reaction to that, you get a new generation, and it's the, it's the Obama generation. Um, and throughout that decade, not just in, um, with the Iraq War, but after it, they, ha they develop a different outlook. And the different outlook is, um, once again, well, the most important difference is political, which is the previous generations felt that the political problem that the Democrats had to overcome always um, was to overcome the charges that the, that the Democrats were weak on defense. Um, and so at one point uh, in the interviews for this book, um, I asked a couple of the Obama officials um, about the Democrats' political problems uh, when it came to national security. And it was a vague question. I didn't ask it as specifically as I might have wanted to. Um, but as a result, it produced an in interesting answer because what I had in mind was George McGovern, um, who opposed the war in Vietnam and lost uh, almost every state, uh, Michael Dukakis, who was depicted by the, um, by the Republicans in 1988 as someone who shouldn't be allowed to be in charge of the military. That was, and you know, for regular Democrats over the years, those campaigns crystallized the, the Democrats' problems in general elections, that they had to show that they weren't that, um, opposed to the use of force in, in all cases. But I didn't say that. I just asked about the Democrats' problems, and the Obamians said, oh, yeah, we mean, you mean the 2002 problem, because to them the political liability was that the, that the Democrats had refused to oppose the war in Iraq. So the, the Obamians have a, a, a sort of different perspective. Um, they've, they, once again, have seen, uh, in a way, not close to Vietnam, but nevertheless, important enough, they've seen an American military, military intervention that's gone bad. They've seen uh, the financial crisis of 2008. And so their view of America's role in the world is different. They tend to, um, they tend to think that the United States needs to show um, a reason for using force, it, that the United States um, r really can't assume that, that it's the dominant power in the world. And that role that the United States has held since World War II, since the end of World War II, 
um, which has a number of words. Sometimes it's America's dominance in the world, America's primacy, America's hegemony. It's the idea that the United States not only is the most powerful nation in the world, but is recognized and other countries follow American leadership, um, which um, had basis in fact for, for a long time is now something that uh, the Obama administration um, can't take for granted. I mean, Obama goes off to meetings. Uh, he goes to, sends his Treasury Secretary to Germany to tell Germany what it should do about the European financial crisis, and they say, oh, thank you, you know, see you next time. Um, that happens, you know, he goes to climate control, uh, I mean, to a climate change meeting in Copenhagen and can't quite get what he wants. Um, and this isn't, this isn't a partisan phenomenon. A Republican president would find this as well. Um, it's, it's a matter of the fact that the United States um, has less clout in the world than it did, like it or not. Um, and the Republicans seem to have a special problem on this. I mean, they really, each time Obama does something that reflects a slightly different uh, um, understanding of America's clout in the world, um, they charge him with wanting that. But it's really, it, it's a matter of of um, the sheer reality. Um, you know, if you're out in, in Asia, the American diplomats out in Asia say, geez, you know, the Chinese sure have a lot of money to throw around. I mean, you know, in Indonesia, we want to give, they're, they're giving um, tens of billions of dollars in, in aid, or, or over 10 anyway, and we only have hundreds of thousands. We just don't have it. And if you're in the, in the Middle East, uh, after the Arab Spring, when uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, essentially opposing the forces for democracy, the United States finds that it just doesn't have as much money to spend um, for its views with other countries as, um, as the Saudis do. So um, there's no diminution of, of military power for a major war, but the United States has less um, available than it did 20 years ago, and officials of all parties who serve in government recognize that. Well, that's so the Obamians, as I call them, um, are trying to reckon with that fact. Now, who are the Obamians? Just um, they're people that whose names are not familiar to you, but there is a um, they're, they're all they all around 40 or in their 30s. Um, uh, there's Dennis McDonough, who is um, kind of who was with Obama since the start of the campaign, who's now the deputy national security advisor, um, and he he's kind of the the enforcer, not in a physical way, but he's the guy who makes sure that what Obama wants, Obama gets. I mean, even first months of the administration, the word went out in the State Department that if the national security advisor, if you get a message from him to do something, it might be. That it might come from Obama, but it might just be the National Security Advisor. If, on the other hand, Dennis McDonough calls, that's the president talking, and you better do it. Um, that's the informal way the government worked. So he was one of them. There's Ben Rhodes, who was the speechwriter who wrote the Cairo speech, many other speeches. Is kind of he's the wordsmith, wordsmith and idea man for the administration. Um, 
there's Samantha Power, who sometimes gets resented by others in the administration because she's uh, better known outside the administration than anybody, any one of them, because she's a best-selling, she, she wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book on the subject of genocide. And, um, she's also a, a tall and striking redhead. And so she's, she's uh, much as she, I don't think she likes it, she's glamorous. And the uh, others in the administration tend to say, who is this? Um, but she, she certainly is, is one of the people close to um, Obama. And she jokingly calls herself the conscience mascot. She's the person who cares about human rights genocide, uh, democracy, um, the moral issues in the administration. That's her assigned role, and she, while she jokes about it, um, she's very good at it. Um, and then uh, there are assorted other people. I won't give you a full list, but the ultimate Obamian is, of course, Obama himself. Because um, he, he, too, I mean, he was 13 years old at the time of the end of the Vietnam War, he was uh, just beginning law school when the Berlin Wall came down. So he, he, these other people really reflect his viewpoint on the one hand, um, and he kind of uses them to get across this viewpoint, which is, in their minds, um, different from both of the previous generations in, in this sense that they, they view the first, the eldest generation, as just overwhelmed by Vietnam. So when they get into talks about Afghanistan, and what to do in Afghanistan, whether to send troops, um, Richard Holbrook, the late Richard Holbrook, um, who had served in Vietnam, keeps coming into meetings and saying, you know, in Vietnam we did this, or this is a problem similar to Vietnam. And they kind of sit there and roll their eyes. Uh, and one of the prom most prominent members of this administration, um, one of the younger members, who's the U Susan Rice, the United Nations ambassador, um, told me for this book, I'm sick and tired of all the neuroses of, of the 60s. You know, we're just, we, we just don't want to hear anything about it. Um, and you can understand that in psychological terms when the subject is Vietnam and they're kind of trying, to, when the subject is Afghanistan, and they're trying to figure out how to get the troops out and negotiate with the Taliban. That sounds a little bit like Vietnam, and there are, there are lessons that they could be learning, but um, they don't want to hear it. And in their view of things, um, the second generation, the Clinton generation, was overreacting. They had to prove they were tough. Um, so they were overreacting to Vietnam. That meant they were still um, influenced by Vietnam. Um, and they think of themselves as the first generation that's past Vietnam. I'm not, now I'm not telling you that this is the right point of view, but this is, this is their image of themselves. And they view themselves as dealing uh, with a different world. That is... Um, if you read the newspapers or foreign policy journals, you hear endlessly the story, uh, the, the phrase rising powers, right? I mean, everyone's, the rising powers, China, India, Brazil, Russia. And I had one of these guys say, you know, this rising power stuff, that made sense maybe in the Clinton years, but 
these powers had already risen by the time we got there. They're not rising powers anymore. They're, they're there. You know, when we got to Copenhagen and had to deal with the, the issue of climate change, the main people at the table who were opposing our point of view usually were the Indians, the Chinese, and so on. This is, you know, this, there's nothing rising about them. They're there. Um, so they see themselves as a different generation. Um, they, they don't uh, – I'll make a couple more points because I want to leave time for questions. Um, the Obama team has changed over the, over the last three years. One of the things that they are politically good at, even a little shifty at, is changing their minds and not acknowledging it or, or taking a position that doesn't work and then shifting back. I mean, the, the images that come through in the press from day to day is of um, – because – and and I was no different. I mean, criticism, um, you know, is mo – more news stories are criticism than, than credit, but I will give them uh, – we'll call it credit or criticism for being politically smooth. Uh, they were that way in the campaign. Uh, the last campaign, uh, people f forget now one of the main um, episodes in the primaries in that f this is 2007, very beginning of the campaign. Um, there's, a, there's a TV debate where people take questions from YouTube, and one YouTube question was, will you meet with the leaders of Iran, North Korea, and, and other countries uh, in your first year in office. And Obama goes first and he says, yes, I will. And, and Hillary Clinton says, no, I wouldn't do that because, you know, you don't have a meeting with a leader without preparing it and finding out what the negotiated, you know, where, where things stand. Um, in some ways, a meeting can be um, with a leader like um, Ahmadinejad can be a concession that you should have only in, in exchange for some diplomatic concession on the other Side. And the Obamians, uh, and the press begins to take up this level of criticism, and they immediately turn it into a denunciation of Washington foreign policy. Clinton and Biden and Dodd represent Washington and Salon foreign policy. We're going to be different. Um, and what happens? Uh, well, two things. They cleverly turn around and change the wording. They, they drop, they, they say, oh, yeah, we promised to carry out diplomacy with these countries. And people shouldn't be against diplomacy. Well, except they, they talked about meetings with leaders. Uh, or they said, you know, we'll meet with officials from Iran, and they left out the leaders. Um, so they're very good at that. Um, when they change their minds, they don't necessarily admit it. And so what's happened in office? Well, they've completely changed their military strategy. Um, when they sent troops into Afghanistan, uh, in 2009, the idea was counterinsurgency, which was, you know, we are going to send in lots more forces to win the support of the Afghan countryside. Troops will do things like building wells in addition to military things. That is a strategy, a very well-defined strategy. It also is one that takes a long time to work, um, takes lots of troops and lots of money. It had this strategy actually had worked in the last years in Iraq. Obama buys into it. 
and after 18 months does a complete 180. No one, they got very little coverage. This was, it was after the success of the bin Laden raid. Um, but he backed off completely and said, no, my, mili my strategy in Afghanistan is going to be uh, counterterrorism, which really means commando raids and the use of drones. So that's one thing that they've changed on. Um, another is the subject of promoting democracy. So this particular youngest generation of Democrats, uh, unlike previous generations, took office as what would be called foreign policy realists. And the definition of a realist was best described to me by um, a very genial man who admits his, his own views, Brent Scowcroft, who was, was uh, George Bush Sr.'s national security advisor, who said, it's none of our business what takes place inside another country's borders. Okay, that's a, it's a coherent point of view. Um, and after Bush and Iraq, the Obama team really saw Scowcroft as their model. There's a chapter in this book called the Scowcroft Democrats because they really didn't want to hear in that first year about the idea of promoting the cause of democracy overseas. Bush had been so excessive in his rhetoric and it had accomplished so little um, that matched the rhetoric that they didn't want to hear it. Um, and the problem was, well, you had close to a million people in the streets of Tehran, and, and Obama said nothing. Um, and for all they, you know, at the time they had lots of defenses of why they said, why they said nothing. There's no doubt in my mind uh, that two years later they would have uh, they would have been far more in encouraging. In fact, the proof is that two years later, at the time of the Arab Spring, they were all but calling for. They were. Um, sending out public messages that the people in the streets of Tehran, I mean, people in Iran should look at their government. Um, and that's their incoming policy. When the Arab Spring comes along, they begin to change their mind and they see value to the idea of promoting democracy. And they've been um, reasonably good on that, I mean, to a fault. We, you know, we now have um, a democratically elected uh, government in Egypt uh, which uh, f is directly attributable to the decision of Mubarak to resign, which came from uh, phone calls and messages from um, Obama and others in the United States government. Um, the third thing they've turned around is their incoming policies on civil rights, uh, counterterrorism, um, the, the the change in the Obama team is that they took office believing that they were going to change the Bush policies and have changed far fewer of them than they did. Uh, and some of that is not, of Ob not entirely Obama's fault or doing. Uh, he, he signed this order to um, close Guantanamo, and it's not as though he really changed his mind, but he gave up when he found that members of Congress um, were not willing to allow um, people to be brought from Guantanamo to maximum security prisons in the United States. No one wanted them in their backyard. It was the classic. Uh, no other countries wanted them. And so there Guantanamo sits in the Obama administration, which signed an executive order 48 hours after Obama got in the White House saying we're going to close it within a year. 
um, still has it on its list of priorities, but about as far down as you can get, I think. Um, and so many of, the, many of the other policies that Obama was committed to change, um, he did not when it came to terrorism. Um, by the second year in, I found them saying, well, you know, what makes you think that um, we should change from one administration? Everything has to change from one administration to another. Um, because they recognized that they were not going to change uh, some of these policies. I must admit there have been a couple of embarrassing explanations for the lack of change. Uh, one of the harshest critics of the Bush policies on terrorism was the dean of Yale Law School, a guy named Harold Coe, who was brought into the Obama administration as a legal advisor at the State Department. Um, and having um, been one of the most, one of the harshest critics of the Bush policies, um, about a year and a, or a year and a half in, he gives a speech to international lawyers where he says, "You know, it's much harder to change policy uh, than I thought." Um, and really, without changing his beliefs, he basically was throwing up his hands and, and saying, "Gee, I didn't know it was this hard." Um, well, I want to let me leave it there. I will say, sec, uh, you know, I would, the Obama team, I think, is the first to very slightly and imperceptibly back off from a commitment to that the United States is and will be the dominant nation in the world now and forever. I mean, they, they seem to be slowly admitting reality. So one of... Obama himself gives speeches where he says, you know, we've underwritten um, s global security uh, for the last seven decades. And he says it that, you know, we've done this for seven decades and kind of leaves open um, how long this is going to last. And one of his, his own aides said to me, um, in response to charges that they believe they want to bring about America's decline or that they believe in a declining America. Um, and I don't, I don't believe they do, but he said, you know, we're not trying to bring about America's decline. We're pri trying to do whatever we can to preserve American leadership for another 50 years or so. And it's that, that reduced expectations and limited um, horizon of how long America's role in the world can persist that I think characterizes this administration. So let me hold up there, and there's a lot I'll try and answer in questions. Yeah, first, first hand up was back there. All the money that we've been giving them for so many years for the anti-terrorism and all, and then bin Laden is found to be hiding in there for so many years in this big, so many feet high uh, building. And then when they do get them, you think they'd be happy that we, oh, they're on our side. And then they put these people in jail in their country, a doctor, and I don't know if they're going to kill him or whatever. And they also just, you know, belittled us and saying we don't have any right to be doing it. We shouldn't have done that. But I thought they were on our side. I thought they were going to be happy that we got them. And why do we keep giving them money if they treat us like that? Well, what, what you're witnessing, yeah, you're, that's exactly right. And what you're witnessing um, on the official level is the is the winding out of a long-standing alliance with Pakistan. It's got deep roots. It goes back decades. Um, and it, w this relationship was perpetuated both with 
the civilian leadership and certainly American intelligence with Pakistani intelligence, military and military. It goes back decades. Um, and one thing little recognized about, I mean, the, the Bush administration certainly um, did everything it could to maintain that. I mean, Bush really did not challenge Pakistan at all. Underneath him, within the government, um, in the Bush years, there's more and more question, what are we doing? Questions exactly like what you're, what you're asking. And this spilled over into the Obama campaign and really has ref um, Obama from the start represented a, um, a different and more critical view. It, it is a risk. Um, but if you look at the Obama, um, the plans for the Obama raid, uh, Bush had always promised specifically his policy was, I'll never do anything without telling Pakistan's leaders. That was true of drone strikes um, and everything else. And Pakistan's leaders, of course, promised that if they ever knew where Obama's, I mean, Osama bin Laden was, they would tell. Um, but I try and trace through in, in a chapter of this book just how many times in planning for the, uh, the, the raid on, uh, on bin Laden's compound, um, he, uh, Obama decided uh, to take the, the most assertive, defiant position towards Pakistan. Um, so it isn't just that he approves a raid that's on Pakistan's soil without telling them. Um, there are all kinds of operational questions. For example, um, the planning is, includes what happens if these SEALs get surrounded? What happens if somehow Pakistan finds out and these SEALs, a handful of people, get surrounded by military and sort of captured, taken hostage, whatever? What do we do? This is the, kind of the operational planning. And the original solution that I think was drafted in the, in the Pentagon was, was nicknamed Talk Your Way Out. And Talk Your Way Out wasn't that the SEALs would talk their way out. It was that they would, you know... Um, go along with being, they wouldn't try and challenge um, the fact that they were kept hostage, but rather Obama or Hillary Clinton would get on the phone with Pakistan's leaders and arrange to get them released. And that, that was the first option. And Obama said, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not sure it's going to work. Um, I'm not sure I can succeed in persuading them. And so they developed the option that they carried forward, which was called fight your way out, which was you, <laughs> you bring in more, more military units. Um, the, there are four or five of those that take place so that when, uh, when this operation takes place, um, Pakistanis you know, at the military and intelligence level are very upset. It was, you know, it was a series of risks. It worked out really well with one asterisk, I have to say. In 40 years, if it turns out that Pakistan um, uses nuclear weapons, um, we might look back on, on the raid um, in a different light. But you know, those sentiments that you raise, which are all, you know, all real and legitimate, they, I would say that's not just from the from the street, that's that's people high up in the administration. They're very, very negative about Pakistan. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. Um, during the Bush years, uh, it could be said 
that uh, foreign policy, like the Iraq War, mm -hmm. was driven out of the White House and driven out of the National Security Council, not l with the lead not coming from the State Department or the Defense Department. When Mr. Obama was elected and designated uh, um, Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. as his Secretary of State, I personally took that as essentially an abrogation of a strong Obama role in foreign policy. Um, so my question to you is, looking at something like Libya, which now we tend to totally forget about, but mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, the degree to which the U.S. would be front and center or backup in terms of the use of force with Gaddafi, my question to you is, was that um, really driven out of the State Department, a.k.a. Secretary Clinton, or were those policies driven out of the White House? Do you follow my question? I follow your question. It's, it's complicated because, in fact, um, in the Libya case, the State Department, um, Clinton did play a, a very important uh, maybe decisive role because the people under uh, in, in the departments and um, around and under Obama were divided on what to do. The Pentagon was opposed. Uh, military, the defense secretary did not think that it was a strong national interest of the United States. Uh, Libya is this, you know, it's a, they, they saw it as strictly humanitarian and it wasn't, it didn't have any other um, component and they didn't think it was the right use of force. So they're opposed. His, um, his advisors are opposed and on, on the one hand you have Samantha Power and Susan Rice who've spent most of their careers on questions of um, genocide, mass killings and so on. Um, and then you have the military and at that point Clinton who usually supported the defense secretary and he supported her on most foreign policy issues. On this particular case, Gates was opposed and Clinton weighed in on the side of, of going in. Um, what is confusing, I think, is that that was, that, that was Libya, but the general pattern is uh, no, that Clinton um, has been and is, you know, on the one hand, politically, she's probably um, benefited more from these four years in government than Obama has. If you talk about public reputation, because she's managed to sort of get rid of the stereotype that she she's just an adjunct of her husband, um, or that um, she doesn't know anything about foreign policy. So she's you know her reputation has come out ahead. Yet she and she hasn't really clashed with uh, Obama. But in general, other than Libya and a couple of other things, um, you know, as a general matter, things really are run out of the White House. Um, and Clinton often has kind of gently complained that she, not about Obama um, in particular, but that the White House controls too much. Um, and, I, and she really hasn't been the decisive force on foreign policy in um, that, you know, she gets the most press coverage um, because first she's the Secretary of State and second she's Hillary Clinton. But um, she really doesn't, is, isn't the ultimate decision maker. Am I answering your question? I think.
you mentioned Richard Armitage and Colin Powell. Mm -hmm. I served in Vietnam with Richard Armitage, mm -hmm. and I read that early in the forming of the uh, policy towards going into Iraq that they were opposed to it, and they presented their point of view to the president. But the president did not accept their point of view and instead took the point of view of the Department of Defense. Yet, both of those men stayed in office through all of those years. Why do you think they did that? Um, I think from, from what the record shows that they didn't directly oppose the war. They kept pre presenting, you know, this is a problem and this is a problem and we should go to the UN more and, and so on. But people perceive, you know, it, it is correct that, that Powell was skeptical and Armitage was skeptical and there was tremendous bad blood. And yet, as you say, they, weren't, they, they didn't act like um, they were entirely opposed. They didn't directly oppose. Um, so, you know, they didn't want to be identified with it. They, I think probably they, w probably they wouldn't have done it, but I'm not sure. Um, they kept raising, raising objections without saying, I'm opposed. Their complaint, and I think this one is valid, is that, that Bush really didn't give them a chance, that there really wasn't a, the kind of structured meeting or debate where they could say, um, I as secretary, and, and usually they're supposed to be in government, um, a specific meeting, uh, should we go to war in Iraq or not, uh, where the secretary of state can give his views. Well, it, wasn't, it just wasn't like that. It, just, um, it, it was an, a decision made by Bush in informal meetings, and they didn't directly oppose. But the the idea that um, I agree that if if they were opposed, they should have and would have resigned. I think they were not strongly in favor, but didn't want to come out and say, "I am against going to war." You, know, you have the the famous Colin Powell, you know, the Pottery Barn rule. Um, once you once you just you know once you break it you own it. Uh, he said things like that, but uh, it's too much for me to say that they were they were directly opposed. Yeah. I'm taking a chance in saying this. Thank you. I'm taking a chance in saying this, but uh, if those two or one of the two had actually strongly opposed, do you think their life would have been in jeopardy? No, I don't. I Thank mean, you. Yeah. Uh, Barack Obama had said when he was running he wanted to restore America's respect in the world. Has, has he done that? Um, I think there's been a change. It's not a matter that... Um, it's it's not doesn't quite match the campaign slogans. I'm sure you'll see TV spots this fall while the Republicans are taking kind of shots about oh um, either weak on defense or whatever. Um, they, you know he, they'll say he's restored America's respect in the world. And, and sure enough, if you go out to you know various world capitals, you'll find people on the streets who who haven't 100% changed their minds. Having said that, yeah, 
um, when certainly in 2003 and 4 and when Bush left office in 2008 it was true and any diplomat could tell you this that even when a European leader wanted to work together with the United States he would be afraid to do it in public because um, you know, if, he, if it was a democratic country, he would get in trouble. I mean, you saw what happened to Tony Blair, but that was true um, of, you know, it was true throughout Europe. And Ob Obama did succeed in turning this, that around, and the way to see that is with Iran right now, where you have um, increasingly tight international sanctions. You, we debate the sanctions policy, but the fact is the United States is working not on its own but with Britain, France, Germany, um, Japan, South Korea, um, and even, you know, the, Ch the Chinese and Russians keep creeping up to full help. Um, but really, he, there, there is a fairly strong international coalition um, supporting economic sanctions, and I, I find that unimaginable under Bush. As a, as a, so that, that is a significant change. Uh, Libya... Again, uh, military action intervention that's taken with America's allies. So, so yes, I mean, I, I think that is a, a very significant change. Yeah. Um, you're making a, a generational argument about the Obamians. Mm -hmm. um, is it, I guess I'm, ask, I'm wondering if it, is it a generational argument or is it the people that Obama surrounds himself with? In other words, once Obama leaves office, will the um, will the policies that he's his political advisors are talking about will they survive him? Is is there a future for this? Sort That's of I would say, um, and without getting into you know the campaign, but I would say if he leaves office after four years. Um, there will be these modest changes, um, significant ones in the in the case of joint action, uh, putting together coalitions uh, on issues like Iran and North Korea, and his legacy. There will be another um, legacy that people will look back on, which is that some quite a few of of Bush's terrorist policies have been perpetuated. And, you know, the, the, there's a funny way in which uh, to take a domestic issue. Um, when Social Security passed in the 30s, you had Democratic presidents right through till the um, 50s. And uh, President Eisenhower, Republican, did not repeal Social Security. And most historians think that that was when Social Security became a permanent part of American life when a Republican president didn't challenge it. Well, in some ways, some of the, the anti-terrorist measures have now been essentially entrenched because um, it's another president from another party who's accepted quite a few of, of these policies. Um, that's not necessarily a happy legacy. Um, but beyond that, um, I would say it will take eight years for a fully... Um, fully thought out idea of coming up with a new role for the United States, which is more modest in the world, can take hold. Um, I think we'll find that Romney, after kind of all, if he were to be president 
After all the slogans, I'm not sure how different his policies will be from Bush, other than uh, I take him at his word. Obama? Excuse me. Actually, both, but I, I did mean Obama. Thank you. Um, I, Romney so far has said that he would change policy on Israel from day one, and I have to take him at his word on that. Um, but lo mostly speak, you know, mostly on issues like Iran, for all the rhetoric, I'm not sure the policies would be much different. Yeah. Let's just have this be the last question. I, sh I should have made clear at the beginning, and it's my, my fault for not doing so. The Obamians, um, as described in my book, are the f it is for foreign policy. So they, these officials are not, other than Obama himself, are not really dealing with domestic policy. But, it, I mean, you're raising the question that I think historians will ask for a long time, which is the, the decision made in the last weeks before he, he was sworn in do we emphasize uh, the, the economy or do we move ahead with health care? Um, uh, people will, you know, look back at that for a long time, I think, and, and wonder. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs>